Alrighty. Well, since Author's Dozen is, I mean, it was about writing 12 books in 12 months, and now it's taking that knowledge and taking it to the next level, baby. Now Author's Dozen about, it's about revolution. And so I'm doing a revolution today. I'm, I'm standing up right now. You can't see it, but trust me. See, I have got restless legs today, and so I'm standing up, and you will notice that, uh, again, like I said before, this change was prompted by a push. Uh, a, a level of discomfort has forced me off of my feet and have created the conditions in which I'm willing to change my behavior. Pretty wild, right? It's like I planned all this out. The push is what happens to get you off your feet, to get you revising. It's what sets you off on a new path. So, what is a new path? What is creative and rare? What is revolutionary? It's hard to define unless we resort to defining its opposite. The revolutionary is categorically not what is normal. It's not what comes naturally, because if it were, we'd all be doing it, and it wouldn't be revolutionary. In fact, it's important that we also discard the notion we have when we say revolutionary, the red flags and the Kalashnikovs and the Che Guevara t-shirts. I'd actually argue that it's completely typical to want to fight for self-advancement. In the story I'm rewriting right now, there are two opposing ideologies of capital, um, you may have heard them. One is called capitalism, and one is called communism. Now, both of those systems are based off of greed. And that's not a slander, that's part of the system. Capitalism gets you to do work by tapping into the need for greed, the need for self-advancement, for the basic necessities of life. If you don't work, you starve in pure capitalism. Um, in communism, the greed comes from the opposite side of the economic divide. Everyone is giving according to their need from a common pool. If there's not anything in the common pool, y'all holodomor and starve. Under communism, at least the, uh, in theory, communism, the means of production aren't owned by a wealthy 1% of plutocrats, and the motivation to work and the greed that comes in is from the social pressure, the idea that we all hold one another accountable to put into that common pool. It's also the greed of getting what those plutocrats had. Again, these are not moral judgments, but it is interesting to look and see how one's economic situation informs their political situation. So it's just complete coincidence that the less well-off are more interested in the uh, left side of the economic spectrum, while those who are better off uh, suddenly turn to right-leaning economic systems. Just completely coincidental how that works. What's common to almost all political revolutionaries is their alienation from power, followed by their forceful seizing of said power. I'm also writing in my book about how there's no upper limit to greed. So people who already have tons and tons of power still want more. It's not at all revolutionary for the upper classes to take over a government in order to protect what they have and increase their power. But on the other hand, it's like, wow, Lenin, so revolutionary of you to use political ideology to assume dictatorial power over the masses. 
It's not conventional at all. Nobody in the history of the world has done such a thing. All right, so what does this have to do with our definition of revolution? Well, revolution is, as we discussed in the last episode, fixing something that didn't need fixing, but instead making it better. That's one difference between revolutionary and reactionary. The reactionary seeks greater power because they feel disempowered in some way. The revolutionary, in its purest and most utopian ideal, is someone who takes something that's good enough and says, well, what if we could mess with this and see if we can't make it better? The least common denominator of revolutionaries, even those who coast on the revolution to gain power, is their dedication to making things better for other people. This is why uh, in modern-day America you find so-called progressives so overrepresented in creative industries. Those who are unable to live authentic lives among the conventional majority are often forced to make a unique path out of the mainstream. So take, for instance, Jews in medieval Europe, who were ostracized from certain majority trades and practices. They often gravitated towards unique and creative jobs in order to survive in a world that would not allow them to be conventional. Then the unique trades were ironically later used as grounds for proof that you know, the baseless conspiracy theory that Jews are somehow different and other from European states. Or take a neighborhood closer to my home. More than 40% of West Hollywood's residents identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender. This isn't the result of some chemical in the water. The filmmaking capital of the world wasn't built on a mystical homosexual ley line. This is the result of LGBT uh, folks being pushed out of other areas and flocking to a place where they can be treated as normal and worthy of respect. The subcultures that they then form are also used as proof for bigots that these people are just different and they're, they're incompatible with our way of life. We force them to do things differently and they do things differently and therefore they're different than us. Or take the Harlem Renaissance or the Islamic Golden Age or the evolution of your favorite brand of music or art or what have you. If you're forced away from conventionality, you'll often become unconventional. Expelled from so-called typical society, the so-called atypical gather around from all corners of the globe, gravitate toward other outcasts, and form explosive new mixtures. You don't have to be persecuted to be in the mix, but you do have to be comfortable with people who think and act differently than you are. You have to be around people who push. Of course, it's healthy and necessary to push back, but that's not the purview of this episode. Might be coming up soon. If your goal is to revise and revolutionize both yourself and your work, it's vital that you place both your work and yourself in places where your opinions, your style, and your actions are rattled. But that does sound uncomfortable, doesn't it? it sounds antithetical to our comfort-seeking nature, and for you personally, it'll likely be a harder life. But that's what I was getting at. The most truly novel and revolutionary act is self-sacrifice. It is unnatural. It goes against the grain of the animal impulse which seeks out for itself the most good imaginable, the greed. And it often defines good as being somehow good for oneself. Self-sacrifice is irrational. In fact, anyone who's been around a child knows that a human must be carefully instructed not to sacrifice everything to oneself. Some of the most creative minds of our generation have tried to explain away altruism as somehow selfish, because they know that selflessness is about the most perverted thing one can do. Granted the presupposition that this life is all there is, and our DNA is all we leave behind. This is why 
the Martin Luthers and Martin Luther King Juniors of the world are praised for their authenticity. They could have had things way better for themselves if they'd only compromised, if they'd only done things the way that they were done. Martin Luther says, here I stand, I can do no other. MLK Jr. says the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. So that's the push. How do you seek out the push? In an era where we can be so comfortable in spaces where no one challenges our opinion, how can you find a space where everyone can challenge you? Well, you can move. Change a location, change a scenery, go someplace where there are a lot of people who are different than where you came from. You can transport your mind through reading and uh, movies and all sorts of other cultural objects that can take you into shoes that you can walk in in places where they do the walk-in. I found in exploring these options that it's kind of like a, a swimming pool, right? You dip your toe in, it's like, oh, it's so cold, and you keep going, and it's always the belly button where the cold really gets to you. Um, and once you dive in, though, it's amazing. It's great. You're perfectly acclimated to the temperature. It's even nicer, like you're in a big water hug. But okay, okay, those are action steps, and that's not what this podcast is about. It's about abstract notions of self-improvement. Well, okay... You need to foster a sense of universal humility. You need to know that you're not always right, and that other people might have it right, but you also need to know that other people might not always be right. You need to find out where you are, and read and examine opinions from the opposite end of the spectrum of wherever you are. This is the cycle of how knowledge is arrived at. You have the thesis, you have the antithesis, and then you have synthesis between the two. Sometimes one of those theses is entirely wiped out and just makes the other theses stronger theses. But without one of those two elements, you actually don't have a synthesis. You actually don't have a conclusion of whether your thesis holds up to scrutiny. But there's an even better place to get a push, and that's just to sort of live your life. So... A lot of stories follow the kind of call to adventure, right? So you're just going about your life uh, like the character in my latest book. Um, her name is Tora, and she is living up on a surface, and she's doing her thing, and things are kind of okay. And then everybody dies, and she's forced to go on a mission of revenge, and uh, it forces her to go to new places to learn new things about herself and about other people. It forces her to examine her uh, ideas about power and about safety. Let's say, I don't know, say there's some sort of virus going around. Let's call it the villain virus. And the villain virus is going around and it's knocking people over and it's a bad time. And seriously, it's so sad and I'm really sad about all of it. But... The villain has knocked us over. It's forced us to go to a new place that we never thought we'd be before. Some people die there. Uh, some people go onto the internet and lose their minds. Other people go onto the internet and discover things that they never would have discovered before. Um, I, like many other white people this year, have been on a journey of self-discovery. Ooh. 
where I read books that teach me how not to be a racist and misogynist piece of crap. And you do gotta love all of us self-congratulatory white people for learning what should be basic common sense. But I digress. So the villain virus, bad, we can agree, right? But it did push. It pushed some stuff. And we are right now looking at a cure for the villain virus, and in finding that cure, it looks like we might have found a cure for malaria? Like a, a vaccine for a disease that kills way too many people every single year. We didn't have the technology or the willpower to go after malaria until the villain virus came along. That's not to say that the villain was like worth it or that we're glad it came along, but it did knock us out of our complacency. Some people had a thesis, some people had an antithesis. We came together, we fought it out, it was bad, but we arrived at some new understanding of the world. Now, to be honest, a lot of the stuff in this episode I just hadn't been thinking about, but I knew I had to make an episode, and also, I knew I had to write a book. And in writing this book, it took me to places that I just wasn't aware of before. So in the world that I set up for Ironclad Nocturne, there are two, uh, like, I call them diarchs, because they're both monarchs, but there's two of them, and they rule over the same system. One is basically like pure capitalism, and one is kind of like a social security system. People feed their power into the system, and one system will look after you if you're ultra-rich, and one system will look after you if you're ultra-poor. They're ruled by kind of separate governments, and they have like a mediator body, which is like a, a senate of some sort. But everybody's kind of going around their business thinking that this is just normal, this is the way things are. Um, one of the themes that keeps coming up in the work is that like this is the way the world machine turns, you know? It's a big machine, we all are just little gears in it, and you fight back against that machine, you get shredded you little gear. So just do your part, do your bit, uh, and kind of just go with the way things are. Somebody is coming along to do some real heinous stuff to that system. That doesn't mean we applaud it, um, but it does allow us to point out the flaws in the original system. So we see that the, you know, ultra-rich and the people who live on the surface of this world are constantly oppressing the people beneath them. We also see that the ultra-rich are, like every ultra-rich kind of person, totally bereft of meaning in their lives, and they have to, like, come up with, you know, Kim Kardashian levels of controversy. They just seek out drama so that they can have something to do. Now, the, the poor obviously have gripes, because they're living underground, and basically they get pooped on so that uh, the people above them can have a slightly better life. So obviously the system isn't working for them. Um, however, I sort of came across this, uh, I was watching The Simpsons, to be honest, because I need my, my um, comfort food. Um, but uh, Sideshow Bob had this great quote when he was running as a Republican uh, for office. He says, Because you need me, Springfield. Your guilty conscience may force you to vote Democratic. But deep down inside, you secretly long for a cold-hearted Republican to lower taxes, brutalize criminals, and rule you like a king. That's why I did this. To protect you from yourselves! 
And what's the whole thing holding this system together? Well, it's complacency. It's the fact that like, you know what? I'll get destroyed by the system if I act revolutionary or revise anything. Uh, I'll just, I'll just keep on keeping on. But that supposition rests on the presupposition that the machine is all there is and there's nothing above or below it. It's just encompassing everything. It's just reality. And uh, the same thing exists for our system. There's a, uh, there's a quote by Mark Fisher that I like. It says, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end to capitalism. And why is that? It's because it's just the way things are. I mean, what other things have we just not critically examined in our world today? And how many of those things were sort of knocked loose by the villain virus? Now that we have to reconstruct the world, we have the freedom to go against those presuppositions, to be a little bit uh, weird with it. Now, I'm not any sort of accelerationist or pesadist. I don't advocate the nuking of the world in order to accelerate the the apocalypse that brings upon a, a new world. And you really do have to check yourself before you start lining people up against the wall. Is this ideology worth killing everybody over? Am I so against this form of art that I'm willing to risk my career and my livelihood to oppose it? Am I willing to risk the livelihoods of the people who work with me uh, the agents, the actors, the whatever. Am I willing to risk their lives on my passion project? And that's what the next episode is going to be about. It's about reacting to the push. But there are some things that it's not too dangerous to question. There are some things where, you know, if you go to a new culture and see how they do things and see that it basically works, or if you read an unfamiliar author or an unfamiliar genre, you know, after the initial shock, you might be calling out to your friends, hey, come on in, the water is great. And I said this before in the original author's dozen, don't waste your suffering. Pushes are going to come along and it's up to you whether or not you just want to fight and fight and fight for the old system, you know, no matter how broken and terrible it was. Or if you want to take that opportunity of getting everything knocked over to rebuild things in a better way than they were before. I told you guys a story last time about how, you know, I had some critiques that sort of knocked my uh, complacency over. And Author's Dozen was, in fact, a reaction to try to get a push out of myself. I just found my uh, situation intolerable. I said this in the first episode. Um, things were just not going great. I didn't like the way my life was heading, and so I decided to sort of jumpstart it with this weird Zoomer project where I was just throwing things at the wall, seeing what worked, seeing what didn't sort of reversing the polarity or, you know, hardwiring the machine to do the opposite of what it meant to do. So in order to maintain comfort, I had to get uh, my work out the door. I had to do all kinds of weird um, and interesting stories that I wouldn't have done otherwise because my comfort rested on the fact that I had told people that I was going to do this project. Um, people were expecting things and counting on me and uh, I hardwired it so that my comfort depended on me being productive. My good buddy Dylan Terry uh, gave me a great uh, criticism of Ironclad Nocturne the way that it was before, 
And I've reworked a bunch of the mechanics of just how that whole world works and what motivates the characters, what motivates someone who might want to read a book like this to actually pick up and read it. Every single one of my critics collabs made me uncomfortable in a way. And you can hear the excitement in my voice in those episodes because when I am pushed into uncomfortability, that's not the word for it, but pushed into discomfort, um, there's a kind of joy in trying to claw your way back and arrive at a better and different conclusion. Enjoy revising and improving things. Be humble. All right, next time we're going to talk about adapting to uncomfortable circumstances. I know you can't possibly relate to this if you're listening in uh, 2021. It's it's so alien to us, you know, trying to, you know, adapt to different situations. But, you know, I mean, my, my personal journey in adapting to this will hopefully provide some insight. And you can hear how excited I am to do this next episode because I'm standing and there's more energy now. You can tell. Ooh, ah, ah, I'm dancing. No, I'm not. That was a lie. But I can, I can say that because none of y'all see me. I am wearing a red shirt. That might be a lie. You don't know whether or not it's a lie. You just need to remain skeptical. Tune in next week to see the resolution of this revolution. And you'll only find out next week whether or not my shirt is red. So, the cliffhanger. Stay tuned. Uh, you, you You better subscribe and like my podcast. You better share it with your friends. Or we may never learn the mystery of the red fabric.